Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. You know me, I'm always interested in the film industry. I'm always interested in where movies are going. I'm interested in the future of movies. So I'd like to put on my my prognostication hat. I'd like to... Uh, I'm, I'm here in... This is Will's Business Corner, where, where I'm going to check... It's the new check, segment that we're, uh, we're pioneering this week. I'm going to check the pulse of the industry. I just saw I just saw today... Steven Spielberg's new remake of West Side Story has underperformed on its opening day, which is interesting because, I mean, it's not a huge surprise to me. It's like, you know, rigorously faithful adaptation of a musical from the 50s doesn't excite a 2021 audience, you know. Not a huge deal. But, you know, it's just the latest in a long line of serious Hollywood movies that have failed in the last couple of months, failed to excite the public. And uh, there are alarming signs out of China, too, because China has been taking fewer and fewer American exports. The last couple of Marvel movies have not got a Chinese release because China is busy building its own film industry. And as we know, diplomatic relations between the United States and China are not at an all-time high right now. So the market is drying up there, which is bad news for the American film industry because it's really counted on China to uncritically throw money at whatever slop they put out. This is going to have huge consequences on what kinds of movies are made and how much they can cost. The fact that the Chinese market is drying up. You're telling me the tactic that they've tried to use for years where, you know, they'll make a Star Wars movie and then they'll just like shoehorn into Chinese characters very lazily. You're telling me that isn't bringing in the audiences in Beijing and Shanghai? The recent Marvel movie Shang-Chi, which was promoted as such a triumph of representation over here, has not been released in China and probably will not be released <laughs> in China, which is so funny. I mean, you got to hand it to them. <laughs> so it's bad news for American drama films. It's bad news for American blockbuster films. The whole industry is falling apart. We're seeing it happen. You keep using the phrase bad news with a giant grin on your face, which which makes me think that this is actually good news for you. Well, you see, I don't know. Obviously, I love the art form. I don't want to see it be destroyed. But in a way, isn't it already destroyed? I think we're living in a very sick culture where after the two years we've had, Hollywood's attempt to give us something that will address the zeitgeist is West Side Story set in the 1950s again. Incidentally, you posted a passage from a review of the Spielberg West Side Story, which I think was by Armand White, and claimed that the film suffers uh, having fallen under, quote-unquote, Tony Kushner's communist anti-American influence. Um, I... <laughs> I'm not super familiar with West Side Story, but can you uh, can you give us some context here? Well, Armand White is just a famous lunatic film critic. I hate to use the word contrarian because it's a word that's often used to just marginalize dissenting voices. Uh, nevertheless, Armand White is a true contrarian, and he always <laughs> has been. And now he writes for the National Review, which has kind of underlined all of his worst impulses. One of the things that's funny about that review is, yeah, he's talking about Tony Kushner's uh, communist anti-Americanism and saying that West Side Story has become too woke. I mean, West Side Story. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, that musical literally invented wokeness. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really funny aspect of today's culture war, how, you know, the cultural right will go back in time and it will insist that, you know, we have to defend all of these cultural objects that, you know, its equivalent uh, whenever they came out would have been vigorously hostile to um, and would have been very upset by. And, you know, it's not just like movies and books. It extends to the right's vague and wholesale defense of 
the quote unquote Western tradition as well, whereby in the name of like combating wokeness or postmodernism or whatever, all of these things that were radical or even maybe just vaguely subversive, maybe not even subversive at all, just vaguely associated with cultural liberalism or whatever, all of a sudden these are, you know, the great beacon stars of our civilization and they have to be defended from, yeah, uh, wokeness, anti-Americanism or communism or whatever, I guess uh, wokeness now fulfilling the sort of equivalent function that communism once did for all our favorite writers at a place like National Review. You know, the West Side Story remake is a funny artifact to me because, yeah, on, on the one hand, it is greeted by conservative writers like Armand White as just the latest assault from a communist culture industry on traditional <laughs> American values. <laughs> And then, and then to everyone else, it's just this weirdly archaic object that represents this absolutely inept attempt to deal with the zeitgeist. Because the people making the West Side Story remake, they're telling us this story is more relevant than ever because it's about how uh, how how racism is bad. Racism <laughs> is bad. That message is more timeless than ever. And of course, you know, to, to everybody who's not part of that national review sphere, that's not the zeitgeist. That's not dealing with the present tense at all. That's just that's just pablum. Yeah, and you know, we've and we've talked about this on the show before, but it very much relates just to, you know, market forces more than anything else, right? There's a reason why so many things are being, you know, recycled and remade and rebooted and prequeled and sequeled and all the rest of it. And it's because increasingly there are just a few conglomerates that make and distribute the lion's share of mass culture. And they have these existing properties, which are familiar to people. So there's less risk involved in uh, putting big money behind them to, to try to create the next blockbuster, even if the uh, the output is incredibly derivative and boring. And I think the same applies to all of these kind of, you know, classics that are being rebooted. I haven't seen it, but, you know, Aaron Sorkin, of course, did uh, did To Kill a Mockingbird recently as well. That's right, on Broadway. Yeah, we got like a Broadway, uh, you know, Trump era version of To Kill a Mockingbird. Featuring Jeff Daniels as Jeff Newsroom as Atticus Finch. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, just taking a survey of the of the culture war here and kind of the right side of it, I just don't really see what they do. Like where they see this very concerted ideological offensive happening, I just see like the blandest market forces and the most horrendous artistic and intellectual laziness and a whole bunch of big monopolies. That's what I see. <laughs> And I don't know, uh, to me, that's hardly communism. You know, monopoly capitalism is sort of the opposite of communism, <laughs> as I understand things. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a small fee in America. Before we get into our film uh, this week, which is actually one we've had uh, a lot of requests for, and I'm, I'm glad we're finally able to do it. I did want to mention that this week, or I suppose uh, really just Thursday this week, felt like an unusually good news day for the American left. You know, it's very rare these days that the kind of net result of the current events that you see on your uh, Twitter feed in a single day, that you walk away feeling positive about any of it. But on Thursday, you had the campaign to recall uh, Kashwama Sawant in Seattle. You had that fail, despite establishment Seattle trying to get rid of her for years and years and years. I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago that she was one of the only, uh, certainly one of the only prominent uh, elected socialist lawmakers anywhere in the United States. Um, you know, 
know, she's been hated by Amazon and by corporate America for many years. And, you know, they even rigged the rules to try to get rid of her. You know, my uh, my colleague Megan Day pointed out that, you know, they got the uh, contribution cap lifted so that the backers of the recall election could basically pour in endless amounts of money. They made sure that the election fell on a date where it would be less likely for working class people to vote. And they lost. Uh, something else else that happened was the big victory of the uh, Starbucks workers in Buffalo, who, again, just facing absolutely vigorous opposition from the company. I mean, just all kinds of stuff from Starbucks here that should be totally illegal. And by the way, would be illegal in the context of a non-union election. I mean, companies, you know, employers are allowed to do all kinds of things when workers are trying to form a union that political actors are absolutely not allowed to do in the context of a regular election. But, you know, so we're going to get, it seems like, the first union Starbucks in the United States, and I suspect not the last one either. Uh, the other thing that happened, which put a big smile on my face, because I've been thinking about him a lot since I interviewed him a few months back, was uh, Stephen Donziger was released from prison to serve the rest of his sentence, which as of Thursday was 136 days from home. So effectively, it sounds like he'll be back under house arrest like he was before and probably still having to wear his awful ankle bracelet, but out of jail, which makes me very happy. Um, so I, I tweeted about all these things. And of course, people jumped in to include all kinds of other things that happened. Uh, New York apparently became the largest municipality in the United States to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. You know, there were all kinds of smaller things that people chimed in with. Nebraska apparently committed itself to net zero electricity. I'm not sure by when. I, I don't know the details on that. But people were piling on all of these positive developments. And it did feel like just if only for a few hours, there was a kind of uh, less than negligible cosmic shift or something. I felt very happy on Thursday. It would be nice to feel that more often. You know, the last time I remember feeling hope like that of any kind was the first week of March in uh, in 2020. I hadn't quite realized how, uh, how much I missed feeling that way. I'm glad you say some of this stuff because it's hard not to feel this ambient sense of exhaustion and frustration and perhaps even hopelessness that's been going around 11 months into a not particularly successful Joe Biden presidency. I think these ambient feelings are even more powerful than they were, say, at the midpoint of the Trump presidency, when for people who define themselves as being on the left, real possibilities sometimes seemed more alive. I mean, we won't get into the group of people who sort of broadly call themselves post-left, but that's a very visible manifestation of this feeling of exhaustion. Yeah, I mean, this will sound incredibly banal and cliche to many of our listeners, but it really is a reminder that struggles are happening all the time and that we do occasionally win them. Even though the left, almost by definition right now, is almost invariably outmatched by whatever forces it's it's contending with, it really is uh, sometimes possible to win, even under incredibly disadvantageous conditions. Conditions. I was driving my car and I hear the news, the shooting in Oka. And that people had been there making a stand for several months and I got very upset of course and I turned around and went to Oka alone in my car. And when I arrived there, there was a barricade of uh, police officers and you couldn't go into the village. So I stood around a bit and talked to a few people, including the police, and I just was amazed and I guess very worried. And I felt it's my duty, it has to be documented by one of us what's going to happen here. So I went back to the film board and I said, 
I'm changing my production. Our film on this episode is Kanisatage, 270 Years of Resistance. It's a 1993 documentary that is the best-known film by Alanis Obamsawin, an Abenaki filmmaker who has made more than 50 documentaries about the struggles of First Nations in Canada. Most of her documentaries have been made for the National Film Board of Canada, but they've been shown all over the world. Uh, she was even... Uh, a couple of years ago, funnily enough, uh, invited to become a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Would you believe that? She's an Oscar voter. Uh, well, do you she's... know, she was celebrated by the Toronto Inter- International Film Festival, I believe, just this year. I think they put on a, a retrospective in her honor. She's now 89 years old. I'm not sure what her last film was. Um, her last film was released in 2019, believe it or not. So she is 89 and still working. We have had a lot of requests for this documentary. It's it's considered a landmark Canadian documentary. One reason why it's worth talking about now is because of the last year that we've had in Canada. Uh, there has been considerable discourse, I hesitate to say reckoning, about the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada, particularly what was once called the Canadian Indian Residential School System. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but just to remind listeners outside of Canada, the residential schools were a network of boarding schools for Indigenous children administered by the Catholic Church. They were established in 1894 as a separate but equal, quote unquote, school system that would civilize, quote unquote, Indigenous children. Now, the last residential school only closed in 1996, and for most of the history of these schools, attendance was mandatory for Indigenous children. The residential schools are now widely understood as a genocidal project. It was partly a cultural genocide because students were forbidden from speaking their languages and learning about their histories. Uh, They were also taken from their families by the state and enrolled in these schools and unable to see their families. But in addition, these were places where there were countless instances of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And during the past year, this enormous discourse in Canada was sparked by the discovery of a number of unmarked burial sites sites for Indigenous children on the lands of these residential schools. So the residential schools have dominated discourse over the last year in Canada. Needless to say, they're just one of a broad tapestry of instances of injustice done to Indigenous peoples in Canada throughout history. This movie chronicles another of them. The broader issue has been top of mind for a lot of Canadians, especially with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was an attempt to document the truth of the residential school system and create a strategy for rectifying some of those injustices. Yeah, and so the TRC actually delivered its report, I believe, in the final year of the last Tory government. Uh, So I think in 2015, in the lead up to the 2015 federal election, although I could be misremembering, it might have been 2014. But when uh, the Trudeau liberals came to power, they did so with the votes of lots of indigenous people. Trudeau appointed Jody Wilson-Raybould, who is an indigenous MP from Vancouver, Minister of Justice. She, of course, later left the cabinet over a dispute with the prime minister's office in relation to the uh, SNC-Lavalin scandal in Quebec, which uh, we don't have time to go into here, but we did talk about on a previous episode. 
Anyway, there's a lot of hope given what the liberals had said in opposition and what they'd promised to do, that there might actually be some changes in the relationship between the government of Canada and First Nations. Now, something I've talked a lot about is the way that in Canada, our kind of official national identity as a kind of post-racial multicultural mosaic does an awful lot to obscure political reality. Something else it does, I think, is instantiate a, a certain aura of cultural smugness and kind of back padding, where even when official Canada is supposedly grappling and, and reckoning with past injustice. It's often really just a pretext to further reassert our foundational national myths, or at least the ones we've had since uh, the 1960s when Canada stopped officially thinking of itself as a British colony. But so an example of this was that early in the uh, Trudeau government's first mandate, Carolyn Bennett, who was then the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, went to New York and spoke at the United Nations and promised, uh, I think the phrase was, uh, to implement fully and without qualification the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, this got a ton of positive press at the time. But like a lot of news cycles these days, you know, you, you get a big news cycle when an initial announcement or statement is made, and then everybody just kind of moves on as if something has actually happened, uh, when all that's really happened is that a statement has been made. So a few months later, when the government announced that it wasn't actually going to implement UNDRIP, there was comparatively little attention paid. I think since 2016, since 2017, as the Trudeau government has gotten less and less popular, there's increasingly a recognition uh, among a lot of people who voted, you know, or at least certainly among a, a less than negligible segment of people who either voted liberal in 2015 or excited about Justin Trudeau becoming prime minister in 2015, that particularly when it comes to indigenous issues, the government has visibly broken many of its promises, even many of its kind of fairly modest promises about how it would conduct itself. There was an absolutely appalling moment in the federal leaders debate ahead of the election uh, last September, where Justin Trudeau was challenged about the fact that Ottawa is still taking uh, survivors of the residential school system to court. And even though everybody knows this was happening, Trudeau felt comfortable. Uh, you know, He was challenged by Jigmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP on this. And Trudeau was comfortable just dismissing this as sort of a line and saying that it wasn't really happening, even though everybody knows it's happening. Anyway, I think many people recognize at this point that Trudeau's pledge when he came to power in 2015, forge a new relationship with indigenous peoples, quote unquote, built on respect rights and a commitment to end the status quo, hasn't in any meaningful way been realized. I mean, I don't think we, we should dismiss the amount of very genuine popular anger there is across Canada about something like the residential school system. There very much is a reckoning going on of a real kind. I mean, that's why you see politicians adopt this kind of rhetoric, because it does actually reflect how a lot of people feel. But I think it's it's very clear that it's yet to lead to the kinds of institutional changes that clearly need to happen, the kinds of policy changes that need to happen. I mean, in some ways, the story uh, that's central to the film we're discussing this week is a bit of an imperfect foil to talk about a lot of this stuff, because the dispute at the root of the Oka crisis, which is the one chronicled in Kanesataki, it's a dispute over a golf course and a, a luxury condominium. I mean, obviously, very high stakes dispute for the for the Mohawk but an unbelievably low stakes dispute for the forces that were trying to get the golf course and the condominiums built. These kinds of disputes in Canada much more often concern resource extraction and things like that, because really since its inception in a big way, Canada has been a resource extraction-based economy. And so something you're also seeing right now, which in some ways recalls OCA, is the use of force by the RCMP and by the Canadian state in British Columbia over the coastal gas link project, which is opposed by the Wet'suwet'en. 
Now, this is something I've been following quite closely because not only does it concern the federal government, but it also concerns the only NDP government in Canada, which is uh, the government of British Columbia, which has not conducted itself well here at all. I've been quite heartened to see Avi Lewis, who you can hear me interview on our Patreon a few months back. He's been circulating this uh, petition, which a lot of NDP members have been signing, basically asked Jagmeet Singh and John Horgan, the Premier of British Columbia, to condemn the militarized raids by the RCMP in Wet'suwet'en territory. I think the petition uh, was only started up in the last few weeks, but lots and lots of people are signing it, including, as of time of recording, three sitting New Democratic MPs, Leah Gazan from Winnipeg Centre, uh, my pal Matthew Green in Hamilton Centre, and Laurie Idlaut, who's the newly elected MP for Nunavut. It's also been signed by Romeo Saganash, a former New Democratic MP from Quebec, and a number of other prominent people. Now, something like the uh, Coastal Link Gas Project, which is a 760-kilometer uh, liquefied natural gas pipeline, or, or I should say a proposed 670 kilometer coastal natural gas pipeline. I'm not sure how much of it's actually been built at this point, but it's one of several big pipeline projects that are hugely controversial. Trans Mountain, uh, the Trans Mountain pipeline being another, and Keystone XL. Now the word gets overused these days, but uh, these natural resource projects, these pipeline projects really do intersect with so many different issues of significance. They touch on issues of indigenous sovereignty because sometimes they meet a lot of opposition. In the case of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, they're opposed by the Wet'suwet'en, but they obviously have tremendous environmental consequences as well. I mean, uh, I don't know if it's still trying to uh, kind of push this point, but for years, the Trudeau government's line on why it was pushing all these pipeline projects was that somehow they were going to create revenues that were going to subsidize a transition away from fossil fuels, which is, you know, I mean, it's like an Oceana has always been at war with Eurasia, like level of argument. But so pipelines touch on issues of indigenous sovereignty, but they also, for very obvious reasons, touch on environmental issues. But then also because there's so much money tied up in these projects and because the economy, I mean, particularly in Western Canada, Alberta and BC, there's so much tied up in these extractive industries. And the provincial governments of those provinces are so captured by this drive to continue expanding uh, these industries. And so you can't really address any of these things without addressing all of the others. I mean, you can't respect the rights of indigenous peoples, and you can't talk about ending the status quo and forging a new kind of relationship, can't talk about reconciliation, anything like that, if you're also going to be pursuing these projects backed up with armed force, backed up with the force of the RCMP, and, you know, spending uh, billions of dollars in public money to make all of this happen. You can't transition away from fossil fuels if you continue to develop these projects, and you can't stop developing these kinds of projects without there being horrendous economic consequences unless you're willing to promote a massive green jobs program, a massive green energy transition without adopting some kind of very large scale industrial strategy. And despite the fact that politicians in Canada are good at gesturing towards these things, sort of saying the right phrases when it suits them, saying things that sound good, the kind of political ambition, the kind of political will necessary to carry out a transition on this scale and address all of these kinds of issues and confront and confront the corporate interests who are profiting so much from the economy as it's presently set up. The story you will see takes place near Montreal in Kanasataki, a Mohawk village near the town of Oka, and in Ganawage, a Mohawk reserve south of the city at the Mercy Bridge. 70 kilometers west of Montreal, the municipality of Oka has approved a luxury housing development and the expansion of a private nine-hole golf course to 18 holes into the pines, 
which is part of the Mohawk Nation's land. Anyway, that was a rather long-winded way of setting the stage for the movie, which I should hasten to add, I really uh, really did enjoy. It's interesting. You're right that the conflict in the movie is such small fry at such low stakes for the forces of capital. Um, um, which which is one of the things that makes it, in a way, such a perfect crisis to discuss these issues. The film does chronicle the Oka crisis, which is an incident that took place in the province of Quebec in 1990. It was sparked by a land dispute between the local government in the town of Oka and the Mohawk people who had inhabited the land since shortly after French colonization. But what's important to know is that the Mohawk inhabited Montreal in the 17th century when the French colonized it. They were moved west of Montreal to a settlement on the Ottawa River called Kanisatake. A written promise was made to the Mohawk nation in the name of Louis XV that entitled them to a nine square mile plot of land, as well as an additional nine mile by one and a half mile plot just to the east of it that would be theirs unless they left it, at which point it would revert back to the king. But this being the Ottawa River, the land was prime real estate for trade routes. So within a year, the governor of Montreal had worked with the king's representatives to negotiate that the deed to the land would be granted to the colonizers. Uh, The Mohawk did not know that this subsequent negotiation had taken place and so remained loyal to the French, even fighting with them against the British in subsequent decades. History moved on. The British Empire defeated France for control of Canada. Ownership disputes continued in the subsequent decades and centuries, all leading up to the Oka crisis. The inciting incident was a court decision that granted permission to the town of Oka to expand a nine-hole golf course to be an 18-hole golf course. The mayor of Oka was in favor of this development, despite protest from Quebec's Minister of Native Affairs. The Mohawk put up a barricade on a roadway leading to the reserve. There was a court order to dismantle the barricade, but when the Mohawk refused, the provincial police, known as the SQ, leading to a 78-day standoff. There were incidents of violence, as when the police used tear gas to try to force the protesters to evacuate, which led to gunfire. Uh, Amusingly, when the police retreated, this left a number of unoccupied police vehicles that the Mohawk were able to use to strengthen their barrier. Throughout the film, we see continual tension between the Mohawk and Oka communities, as in one scene where a number of Mohawk women and children evacuate the reserve and their cars are pummeled with rocks. There's a lot of open bigotry, as when Prime Minister Brian Mulroney is seen stating that Canada will not cede to the demands of protesters, many of whom are not even Canadian citizens. Eventually, the protests last long enough that the Premier of Quebec requests federal aid from the Canadian forces under the same law that was used to justify the use of martial law during the October crisis two decades earlier. What is the War Measures Act, by the way, Luke? Well, famously, it w- it's the, uh, I guess, federal statute, if I'm getting my, my terminology right, uh, which allows the government to suspend habeas corpus uh, under conditions of real and apprehended insurrection, which is was a phrase popularized during the October crisis. Something else Quebec-related we'll have to talk about on the show at some point. There's a very good documentary about it called Black October. This is something I love about Canada, by the way. We have so many loopholes in our system that, like the notwithstanding clause, 
is where the premier of a province can essentially say, notwithstanding a Supreme Court decision, we're going to do this. All these little loopholes that essentially could turn this country into a fascist country just at a moment's notice and nobody could do anything about it. Uh, If it's not already a fascist country. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrive at the scene At this point in the documentary, about three quarters of the way into this two-hour documentary, a feeling of exhaustion begins to set in. That's not a criticism of the documentary, just sort of describing the atmosphere that it begins to evoke at that moment. The protest drags on. Food shipments start being tampered with. We see that the soldiers are using bayonets to pierce the bags of flour. Bananas are being crushed. Eggs are being cracked. Meanwhile, journalists are being quickly shut out of the protest. There's one moment where we see journalists kind of trapped behind barbed wire on one side of it. They're trying to throw their video and photographic journalism to co-workers across the other side of the barbed wire, but the military is constantly intervening. Yeah, that's right. Jeffrey York uh, from the Globe and Mail, who I believe is still with the Globe and Mail, He appears at one point to complain that the army is basically controlling uh, the media in relation to the incident and is filtering what people are able to see. I should say, by the way, we've been referring to it uh, intermittently as the Oka crisis. It's alternatively referred to as the Kanasataki resistance. Probably a better way to refer to it now that you mention it. Throughout, there is the ever-present worry of a massacre. There's a sense of inevitability. We repeatedly hear the Mohawk protesters say, uh, this far and no further, we're prepared to die on this land. So how does the conflict resolve itself? It ends with the Mohawk evacuating. Their bargaining power is weakened when a workaround traffic route is established. Pressure also intensifies with the RCMP using high-force water hoses, as well as the aforementioned tampering with food supplies. Uh, In addition, mainstream media presence wanes with the constant interference of the military, as well as just the sheer length of the protest. By the end of it, the CBC and the daily newspapers have all left. Right, and I found an interview that uh, the director, Alanis Abomsuane, did on the CBC shortly after this film came out. And in it, she described the incredibly difficult conditions involved in the making of this movie. She talks about how hard it was just to do basic things like charge the batteries for cameras. When she was filming this, of course, she didn't know uh, how long all of it was going to carry on for. Um, And so she was running solo on film that she actually ran the film slower so that she wouldn't use up as much of it. She talks about how dangerous it was. She spent nights sleeping on the ground uh, with nothing but garbage bags as, you know, very tense scenes unfolded in the dark all around her. There were probably other reasons for it, but I'm assuming that the difficult conditions involved in filming and in capturing what was going on was probably one of the reasons anyway why uh, broadcast news, you know, its interest in chronicling what was happening gradually waned to the point where, I mean, at one point in the film, it seems like Jeffrey York uh, from the Globe and Mail is the only uh, non indigenous journalist, at least on the scene. It ends with the Kanesatage protesters trying to put a brave face on the situation, essentially saying this wasn't a surrender, this was an evacuation. The struggle continues. The struggle has been going on for 270 years and will continue for much longer. Well, we should say that in the end, the golf course expansion and the townhouse construction, the luxury townhouse construction were canceled. The federal government ended up buying the Pines, which was this at one time, I guess, common area 
area that was at, at the root of the dispute. In 2001, there was a piece of legislation that confirmed uh, that the land was going to be reserved for the Mohawk, although notably it didn't actually establish the land as a reserve. So I don't think it's exactly been uh, formally transferred. And of course, that all happened after this film was made. Um, but the film ends by recounting a number of absolutely astonishing facts. So um, $155 million total was spent combined by the federal government and by uh, the government of Quebec, all to try to get a uh, golf course expansion and luxury condominiums built. You know, that's what all of this money and all of this brutality uh, was ultimately about. And in the face of a little over 30 protesters, plus a few other additional civilians who were living there. Yeah, and uh, and not just the deployment of police as well. I mean, the deployment of the military. There were some 2,600 troops mobilized who took over from the provincial police uh, and went to the barricades. Now, for comparison, I looked this up. in the uh, During the Canadian involvement in the Gulf War, there were 5,100 military personnel mobilized. And I think that's total personnel, not just troops. But of those, the peak involvement at any given time was 2,700. So for Canada, this was Gulf War scale uh, mobilization to try to get a golf course and luxury condominiums built. They have the full weight of the state, the full weight of capital leaning against them. And then what do you do in that situation? Do you negotiate? Well, anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. And I'd love to, uh, in the future, on the show, watch some more films by Alana Sobam Suwain. I found a quote from her, which I think is a nice point to go out on. She once said of her films, uh, the basic purpose is for our people to have a voice, no matter what we're talking about, whether it has to do with having our existence recognized or whether it has to do with speaking about our values, our survivals, our beliefs, that we belong to something beautiful, that it's okay to be a native person in this country. I'm going to Oka right now. But I couldn't get a crew together. I got a camera person, that's all I could get. I had to do the sound myself. And when we arrived, I couldn't go any further. The police were there and they were turning everybody back. So we started filming that. And it was very funny. It was like an animation film to me in my eyes because police said, you're not allowed here, go away, stand so many feet away from us. So we would go with as far as they said we had to go. And then they'd get very busy because they were turning all the cars and they were arguing with people who want to get in. So we were like pigeons, we'd just come a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then we'd be right back. And they wouldn't notice us because they were so busy. And then we continue filming. And then when they noticed us, they I told you to go back. And then we'd be sent back again. And then we would come back. We were a nuisance to them, you see. And for the first two to three weeks, I was the sound person and the director. Then I got a sound person. There was a lot of people that came to work there. They wouldn't last at the beginning. So oh, I'm not staying here, you know, like they were scared and nervous and didn't like the feeling there, so they'd leave. So we'd always were looking for new people to replace them. It was very, very difficult. And you, you know, we thought it'll last, you know, two, three days or an, another weekend, but it lasted 78 days. It's hard to believe that it lasted that long. It was longer than wounded knee. <laughs> 